Thank you for joining us for today's lecture with Dr. Robert Royal to discuss his new book, Columbus and the Crisis of the West. Dr. Royal is the president of the Faith and Reason Institute, and he's also the St. John Henry Newman Chair at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. Now you can read more about the esteemed Dr. Robert Royal and his long career in the event description below. And without further ado, I welcome our good friend, Dr. Robert Royal. Well, thank you, Rosemary. It's always a pleasure to be here at the CIC, and especially a pleasure to be physically here today at the CIC when so many of us have to um, engage with one another at a distance, and unfortunately, even in this lecture, that's what we're going to do. But uh, this place is special. It is a spiritual center, it's an intellectual center, and it's physically in the center of this city, this important city, probably this capital of the world at this point in, in human history, and therefore really carries out an absolutely crucial role. The prayer that goes on here, the study, the library that's available, the books that are, that are available here, the sacramental worship, all this is absolutely essential. We, you know, we talk about the presence of the church in the world, but especially now during the pandemic, and even more so in the rifts that exist in our politics, it's absolutely essential that a place like this be here. And so um, I'm happy to be here to talk about my book, but I even want to say that it's even more important that the things that are going to continue to go on here at the uh, CIC are, are essential. Uh, and they bring a truer perspective to the world than um, most of what transpires here in Washington, of course. Now, I want to approach this subject of my book, Columbus and the Crisis of the West, from a somewhat different angle than you might expect, given the turmoil over him and over the legacy of the European uh, Age of Exploration in this country. I want to start from a Catholic perspective. Bartolomé de las Casas, who was a Dominican friar active in the early years of the European missionary efforts here in the Americas, earned the name the Defensor de los Indios, the Defender of the Indians, because of his passionate diatribes against exploiters of native peoples in the New World. And along with other philosophers and theologians in Spain and Rome and elsewhere in the Old Continent, he drew on classical and Christian traditions to argue that the newly encountered peoples, we some commonly call Indians or Native Americans, these newly encountered peoples here in the New World were rational beings, which meant that they were human persons made in the image and likeness of God who had rights and warranted respect on both secular and religious grounds. Now, naturally, Las Casas' stance drew the ire of vested political and economic interests, whom he roundly rebutted both in Spain and here in the New World. Um, he also knew Christopher Columbus personally, and this is where I think he becomes quite important for this story. And despite being highly critical of some of the things that Columbus did, a very few actually, where he thought that um, he was a bit rough because he didn't really know how to handle the situation, um, he also spoke of Columbus. Again, I want to say he knew Columbus personally. He spoke of Col the sweetness and, and benignity of character of Columbus and defended him. Uh, against people who blame Columbus for the disorders and violence that occurred during the first contacts with indigenous peoples, even in his own day, and for the disorders, frankly, that existed among Spaniards. 
The great explorer's missteps, he maintained, were the result of ignorance of divine law and misjudgments about how to proceed. And I'm quoting here, truly, I would not dare blame the admiral's intentions, for I knew him well, and I knew his intentions were good. Now, contrast that with this. During the riots that took place in America in, in mid-2020, just last year, several statues of Columbus were toppled. And after the statue in Milwaukee fell, I watched video of people, mostly young white people, taking turns, turns stomping on that statue. Now, that was presumably because they regarded Columbus as the source of the displacement and killing of Native peoples and the subsequent slavery and racism in the Americas. Whatever their reasons, however, it's quite certain that unlike Las Casas, the mobs knew little or nothing about the person against whom they raged. Or other toppled statues of various figures. We know that there were uh, attempts to topple statues of Jefferson and Washington, even Lincoln, and even black activist abolitionists like Frederick Douglass. And these activists mostly didn't even care to know much about the past because it's become self-evident and this is the crisis of the West that I want to talk about. It's become self-evident to many people just now, insofar as they conceive of, of what they're doing, that the whole history of Western exploration and expansion is nothing but a tale of exploitation, imperialism, and white supremacy. And if you believe that, a priori, that's prior to any actual look at facts and any attempt to sort out what was good and what, ba what was bad in the process of the early exploration, as in all things that are human, then even looking into the factual basis for what you're going to say, uh, either pro or, or con, starts to look like it's making excuses for genocide and for racism. And that's what we hear. Now, it used to be possible to assume that any person who had graduated from high school, even grade school, would be familiar with at least a few real facts about what happened in 1492. I don't believe this is any longer the case, and it not only fails, it, it not only reflects failing educational institutions, to be sure, but it needs to be said that there is an anti-American, even an anti-Western and an anti-Christian impulse behind uh, these a uh, lot of the, the most radical criticism within the West itself, and all the West, because it wasn't only in America in 220 that crowds down statues, but in England, France, Belgium, Canada, Germany, and, was th and were threatened in many more. And these were the central figures of our Western civilization. Curiously, a much more troubling figure like Karl Marx, whose ideas gave rise to uh, revolutions that killed 100 million people in the 20th century, far more than the wildest estimates of what happened to people, in, or to Native peoples or enslaved persons, Statues of Karl Marx went unharmed in Europe and in the United States. Now, this is quite strange, of course, because you don't have to believe that, say, the French Revolution or uh, the Communist Revolutions were of unmixed benefit to the human race to take the trouble to know a few facts about 1789 or 1917 and something about what those dates mean. The year 1492, in which a far greater change came into the world, indeed, it began this colossal process by which the various nations and continents became truly global, an in interconnected world, one world, is now for many people something to be ashamed of, even to denounce. 
In a less unsettled mood, we might regard that forging of one world from a world that had, been, had not known itself to be one world before as owing to one of the central features of the legacy of boldness and tenacity of Columbus, however little gratitude it produces today that we inhabit that one world. Now, I wrote another book on this topic that appeared in 1993. It was called 1492 and All That. That was on the actual uh, quincentenary, the 500th anniversary of Columbus's first voyages to the New World. And back then, many of us were trying to think through in public, um, in print, on television, radio, even in academic settings, what exactly 1492 meant. More than three decades later, there is an even larger uh, wealth of historical knowledge and uh, analysis that scholars have uncovered about the age of exploration. But there exists something ap approaching um, a kind of a taboo about saying anything positive about Columbus or any of the other European explorers. Now, just one anecdote about the, the difference between October 12, 1992, the 500th anniversary, and today. On October 12, 1992, I gave a lecture at Princeton University, making some of the same points I'm going to make this evening. Curiously, by the way, I was invited by Father John McCloskey, uh, a former director of the Catholic Information Center here in Washington, who was then an Opus Dei chaplain at Princeton. My lecture was received well enough uh, there. We debated certain points, as often happens in academic lectures. We all left peacefully. As we all know, that couldn't possibly happen today. I could not get up on a normal uh, American campus anywhere today to say what I'm about to say here without provoking violent protest. In fact, probably without provoking protest that would prevent me from ever appearing. Now, people who are ready to condemn Columbus for every ill that has occurred on these shores strangely, strangely, would never think of crediting him for any of the many goods that have been achieved and, and that they are themselves benefit, benefiting from, whatever their racial or ethnic backgrounds as well. And it would not be stretching things to say that the blanket rejection of Columbus has become something of a poorly informed metaphor for the repudiation of virtually all of Western history. And it doesn't stop even there. As historian Wilfred McClay, a friend of mine, has observed, the pulling down of statues as a form of symbolic murder is congruent with the silencing of dissenting opinion, so prevalent a feature of campus life today. In my own academic field of history, it is entirely of, of a piece with a weaponizing of history in which the past is regarded as nothing, nothing more than a malleable background for the concerns of the present and not as an independent source of wisdom or insight. Now, those truths, I think, have a, even a greater significance if we consider that what, it is, what is at stake is not merely the historical evaluation of Columbus. I'll get to that, Columbus and Europe, or white privilege or whatever, whatever else you think is at stake. This really goes to the heart of what civilization means. Given the universal evidence of human sinful, sinfulness and imperfection, we put ourselves in the position of preferring to have no cultural roots, to cancel not only one another as individuals, but to cancel our very culture if we demand only to allow into public spaces and permissible discourse what we believe on unclear grounds is now our perfection of moral vision. 
Now, any historian would say it's going to be an interesting question to consider what future generations may think of our own age, with its tens of millions of abortions globally every year, our casual acceptance of pornography, our trivialization of sexuality, our materialism, our obsessions with safety, and our panic, our outright panic, at contrary ideas to what's standard at the moment. One of the central things that my book tries to demonstrate is that the radical critique of the West could not have happened without the very values that spring from the Western tradition itself. And by that, I mean specifically things like equality, human dignity, liberty, the Christian universalism that sees every human being as a child of God, something that exists, at least to my knowledge, in no other civilization. Let's take slavery, for example. Slavery has had a uni is universal in human history, from ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia to China, classical Greece, and Rome, as well as Russia, the scattered kingdoms of Central Africa, the First Nations of Canada, the various North American tribes, the great empires of Mayan and Aztecs, the Ottoman Empire, and the antebellum American South. People sometimes argue that chattel slavery, which means outright ownership of other human beings, not just sort of servitude, where a person is a servant, that outright owning of another being. This is often said to have been invented in the American South. And actually, any historian uh, worth his salt can tell you it can actually be dated back at least as far as, as the Code of Hammurabi, which uh, appeared in 1750 BC, and also in ancient Egypt. It was almost entirely the work of white Christians, like Las Casas, Francisco Vitoria in uh, Spain, uh, the some of several popes in Rome, and then later the British Quakers and Methodists, drawing on biblical sources, it was al almost entirely because of those white Christians that slavery was gradually eliminated in almost the entire world. Now, it still exists, of course, but in places where Christian sensibility is absent or inactive. It has to exist in the shadows. Now, I know that it disturbs some people to learn this, that slavery, genocide, imperialism, even ritual human sacrifice and cannibalism were present here in the Americas long before any Europeans or other outsider ever set foot here. But they were. Slavery was a part of Native American traditions, both before and after the, the arrival of Europeans. It was, of course, common in the large empires, as in empires in other continents. But it also existed in what it is today Canada, particularly the Pacific Northwest, those tribes, and almost everywhere. As late as the notorious Trail of Tears, which is the, the mid-19th century series of forced relocations of several tribes from the American Southwest to west of the Mississippi, there were black slaves owned by Native Americans. And they formed part of those making that trek. This has been well documented by quite credible sources like the Smithsonian Institution. And just to be clear, there was also Native American genocide, even among groups for whom any decent person will feel a great deal of sympathy for today. For, for instance, this past year, on July 4th of 2020, there was a great controversy when um, President Trump spoke at Mount Rushmore. And the controversy was that, first of all, about the, the presidents who are celebrated there, Washington and Jefferson, of course, were slave owners, and Lincoln, for some people, wasn't sufficiently woke about slavery and about racism, et cetera. But even more so, 
the question arose of the very site where Mount Rushmore is located, which is in the Black Hills. And um, anyone, however, who knows that history knows that it wasn't simply the case that the U.S. government took this over from Indians in some unprecedented fashion. We know that in 1776, which was the very year that the American colonies placed, uh, declared their independence, the Lakota Sioux conquered the Black Hills, where Mount Rushmore is located. And they wiped out. They committed genocide against the local Cheyenne, who held it previously. And the Cheyenne had taken it from, a, from the Kiowa, who took it from, we can only imagine, some other tribe. As one informed historian put, pointed out, and I'm quoting here, the Lakota Sioux arrived in the West after being on the losing end of a war with other tribes in Minnesota in the late 1700s. Known as the Lakota, or simply the Sioux, they waged genocidal war on other tribes before they took over the Black Hills from the Cheyenne. They did the exact same thing that the United States did to drive the Lakota out. Now, I bring all this up not to exonerate anybody or to use whataboutism. Other people have done the same thing. It's just to, to, so that we can be informed ourselves about how difficult it is to escape the network of human evils that have existed throughout history, what we as Christians, of course, know as original sin. And let me give you just one more example. The African-American author Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a highly influential and uh, highly prized book in 2015 on the history of racism and white supremacy in America. It's called Between the World and Me. It's a kind of message to his son Samori. His son, he named his son after the late 19th century African leader Samori Toure, who was a devout, devout Muslim who fought against French colonialism in West Africa. But he also was a slaver. He captured and sold black slaves to finance his empire building. And in so doing, he was carrying on a tradition, black Africans capturing and selling other black African slaves to others. And that tradition predated the Atlantic slave trade by at least a thousand years and actually continues today in various forms of human trafficking. Now, I want to say again, to recall such things is not to excuse Europeans or especially Christians who should have believed behaved better then and still should now. But it is to get a clearer picture of what we as a species have been rather than these fictional representations of purely good non-Western cultures and purely bad actors in the West. Th these are Western distortions that can't stand the slightest acquaint acquaintance with real human history. It's common today, for example, also to charge Christians with violence or religious bigotry, not only towards Native Americans, but even Muslims. You may recall that there, one Islamic group called for the renaming of St. Louis, Missouri during the two, 2020 riots because the French king, Louis IX of France, 1214 to 1270, after whom St. Louis is named, uh, had fought against both Jews and Muslims. And in fact, he had been captured and imprisoned by Muslims in Egypt during the Seventh Crusade, which was an attempt to free the Holy Land from the Muslim conquerors. In modern pluralistic societies, let's be clear about this, where large numbers of people with very different beliefs must try to live together in some sort of civic orderliness, such religious tensions obviously need to be avoided. But it's not so easy to transport modern, post, uh, postmodern American concerns 
back into the Middle Ages, whether you're talking about St. Louis or you're talking about Muslim conquerors, let alone the Age of Discovery. Now, a few, um, a few Westerners know this, but in 1453, so about four decades before Columbus arrived in the Caribbean, the Ottoman Turks finally overthrew Constantinople, which was the remains of the Eastern Roman Empire. It's the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire for over a thousand years. And then they continued with further advances. And this process had a long history. Muslims repeatedly made incursions into the Holy Land, North Africa, uh, Spain for 800 years. They had conquered Spain, Rome, Sicily. They ruled, ruled Sicily for almost a century and elsewhere. So it's no surprise that Louis the IX fought Muslims, even as he was beyond all dispute one of the most saintly and charitable and admirable of kings. In the context of his time, preventing Muslim advances preserved Christian civilization. Had he and others failed, European and American cultures might today resemble the Middle East, and the voyages of discovery might never have occurred. Now, that downfall of Constantinople in 1453 sent shockwaves throughout Europe and Spain. It's one of the reasons why Ferdinand and Isabella, by fits and starts, and finally in 1492, expelled Muslims uh, because of their fear of Ottoman support for rebels. And it didn't stop there. Muslim invaders pressed on in the Balkans and other Western territories, even famously reaching Vienna, where they were only turned back with some strokes of good fortune, primarily the last minute arrival of Polish Hussars in 1683. Indeed, if revisionist views of European nations in the Middle Ages and early Renaissance tend to try to make them look like nothing so much as the Game of Thrones, all the violence that occurs. Recent scholarship about pre-Columbian America makes much of the New World appear not so very different than what I've been talking about up till now. Our picture of native peoples in the English-speaking world has been strongly shaped by images of the relatively thinly settled Indian lands that the English colonists encountered. And that was especially after the diseases from Europe felled large percentages of native communities. Sometimes as many, eight, as, as many as 80% of a given population would be destroyed by European diseases without those people ever having seen a white man. It was just transmitted uh, along trading routes. And you can imagine, we know what great disruption this pandemic has had with far fewer casualties. What it, and yet it's disrupted our societies. You can imagine what losing 80% of your people would do even to a village. It was... Um, from those thinly settled Native Americans that we derived this idea of the noble savage, physically fit, independent, living lightly on the land. And that picture, of course, is not entirely wrong, but for a small segment of indigenous populations. And it, it, it depends on focusing on those populations, which to, just to give you a sense, all of New England, I grew up in New England and I was shocked to learn this, all of New England at, at the time of the European exploration probably had 100,000 Said, uh, uh, indigenous peoples when the settlers arrived. The population of Boston has got to be six or seven or eight times that, and that's Boston alone. So you can get a sense of, uh, of how thinly settled the all of New England was at the time. And those peoples, by the way, were not necessarily all friends to one another, even before the, the white men arrived. We see, uh, quite we see this much more clearly when you go to the city-states and even the empires that existed in Meso and South America in recent decades. So th these have been explored uh, tremendously by, by uh, scholars. 
And the argument for universal human nature, which is to say the fallen nature that, that we Christians believe has occurred since, um, since Adam and Eve were, were uh, banished from the garden, the evidence for this appears across all cultures, all places, all ages. People who have actually looked at it know how much glory and, and horror can exist together. Take the example of Aztec civilization. Tenochtitlan, which was the uh, capital of the um, Aztec Empire and was the, the basis for today's Mexico City, of course, the core of Mexico City. The earliest Spanish explorers with Cortes, some of whom had sailed to the most opulent uh, cities in the Mediterranean, could not believe the richness of the buildings, the population, the foodstuffs, and the various cultural achievements of Tenochtitlan, which they, some believed actually surpassed anything that could be seen in Europe or the Middle East or North Africa. And it was the center of an empire perhaps of five million people, built by conquest over neighboring peoples, maintained by human sacrifice to the bloodthirsty gods who required human blood to maintain the equilibrium of the world. Now, they were not alone in this. The other great civilizations of the Americas, the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Maya, the Incas, also produced impressive urban centers and political, economic, and social networks, so much so that archaeologists and others have uncovered the remains of those civilizations and estimate the population of the Americas have, have soared wildly as they've been doing this. Some of the increase is doubtless owing to the desire of scholars to compensate, overcompensate, other scholars might say, for the relatively small numbers that were once thought accurate. So people now think that between 8 and 120 million inhabitants existed in Central and South America. But you can just imagine the large urban centers and, and empires like that with extensive networks surrounding them um, needed uh, armies and, and, and needed conquest in order to continue to exist. They were not unsullied paradises as some people would like to portray them. They cultivated and depleted natural resources, had a, an impact on the environment from the high Mexican plains to the Amazon and, and everywhere, if truth be told. They fought typical wars of conquest with one another. They rose, flourished, declined, and disappeared just like hu human habitations in other parts of the world. Most of them practiced slavery. Um, this is a, a much more um, accurate description of what Native peoples uh, have been than the idealized portraits that we try to uh, believe are true in the, the postmodern West. But the postmodern West that's looking for something other and hoping that there is some civilization out there that, that doesn't have the same worries that we do about our environment or our way of treating one another or racial or ethnic tensions. But when you, do, when you idealize other people, you're not actually paying them a compliment. What you're do, doing is setting them up for, a, for, for a, uh, a, an extreme reaction of criticism when the truth about them is discovered. They are not living in the Garden of Eden, but owing to the sinfulness, the limited vision, and the weakness of our, human, our, our universal human nature are very much, very much just like us. Now, that, this applies to current critics of the past as well. If you're going to pull down statues of Columbus because he and the culture out of which he came were imperfect, what ideals will you offer to the future? 
When my first book, 1492 and all that, uh, came out, it was reviewed in the New York Review of Books, and the Oxford historian J.H. Eliot suggested that it was regrettable that a book like mine even had to be written. But it did have to be written. And books like this still have to be written because we've forgotten even more of what we once knew about human history in general and Columbus in particular. Anyone who actually reads into the history of um, Columbus will find many things, I mean, Columbus and the other explorers, many things that we would criticize today. And I, I would not idealize Columbus any more than I would idealize any Native American group. But there's also much that deserves our praise and even our gratitude for what it has brought us. All of us, white, black, Hispanic, Native American, and others now included in our diverse society. Yet what is commonly said of Columbus himself, and I'd want to turn to him now as an individual, just to get clearer about what he did and did not do uh, as an explorer, reveals almost entire ignorance, and let me say this plainly, pure bias. And let me bring in evidence just a couple of telling examples. Most school children are taught two things about Columbus. First is that he was a genocidal maniac. That exact phrase, those two words, genocidal maniac. I think this mostly stems from some highly distorted and ideological material in um, the anti-Western and Marxist-inspired book by Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, which has had a career in colleges and universities and high schools. Many teachers have been formed reading that book. And it insinuated itself into our educational circles and has had a huge impact on at least two generations of teachers and students. So genocidal mania comes from that background. And then the other phrase that students learn is that Columbus was worse than Hitler. And the American Indian movement has been the primary source for that. Now, of course, it's complicated when you look back at a figure like uh, Columbus. But consider this. To commit genocide against an entire people takes dedication. And no sound historian would believe that Columbus set out at any point in his career to commit genocide. I'll, I'll tell you about a funny uh, event that happened. My colleague at the Catholic thing, Brad Miner, entirely on his own initiative, um, looked into the history of Columbus last year around Columbus Day. But Brad was born in Columbus, Ohio, so he was offended when the mayor of Columbus removed the statue of, of Columbus from public and put it somewhere in a museum to be contextualized, as people say these days. Now, like everybody, Brad went to Wikipedia, the source of immediate knowledge for all of us these days. And he found it asserted under the entry for Columbus that Columbus had, per had perpetrated genocide against the Tainos. The Tainos were this tribe in the Caribbean on the island that we now call Hispaniola, which has both Dominican Republic and Haiti on it. They were a tribe on that island that he first came into contact with. So that, the entry under Columbus said he committed genocide against the Tainos. But Brad went on, he'd be a curious fellow, and he looked up the Tainos. And Taino, the entry on Tainos in Wikipedia said nothing about genocide, because there wasn't one. That was one of Howard Zinn's fictions, and you can look in his book and find it there. I, I, I would just simply add again that any notion that he perpetrated genocide against anyone, or even 
committed widespread violence. He was, he was at times rough with both Spaniards and with native peoples because he was, uh, he was a great sailor but a poor governor. But he, he was never at any point in his career hell-bent on genocide the way we normally think of genocide. And just to finish this thing off, worse than Hitler, Hitler killed 40 million people, including 6 million Jews in the 20th century in and a real attempt at genocide. Were Columbus and a few Sp Spaniards really in that league? There's, there's nothing at all like this. Now, one other thing. I'm sure many of you have encountered, as I have in my own county, I live in, in Northern Virginia, just across the river here from Washington, D.C. Many of you have encountered this movement to replace Columbus Day, which celebrates an imperfect man, Christopher Columbus, as we celebrate imperfect men like Washington and, and Jefferson and Lincoln. The effort now is to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. Now, I have nothing against celebrating indigenous peoples if we know what we're celebrating them for, who they are, did they like one another. But to replace one of the key figures of our Western civilization, Christopher Columbus, to replace him with this kind of vague indigenous peoples who, as I've been trying to show, have just as checkered a history as any that we can see coming out of Europe is, to my mind, uh, just pure bias. It's, again, this attempt to cancel our own Western civilization on the, on the basis of nothing grounded in, in the truth or in history. And we should all be alarmed at the fact that that's going on. Columbus clearly has become a convenient symbol onto which we can project all the things that we dislike or, or some of us dislike about our culture uh, in, the, in the very first appearance of um, the Western civilization on the, these shores. And I, as I've said many times, the people who want to blame him for everything that has happened that's bad on these shores since 1492, curiously, would never think of giving him even a little bit of credit for all the very good things that have happened on these shores. And that's something that I think we want to pursue um, more vigorously in the future. To describe Columbus now, him personally, because he, like, like everyone alive today, he was an individual. He was quite different from Cortez, who conquered Mexico um, and was a mixed figure in his own way. Enormously different from a figure like Pizarro, who I think of as a, as a kind of a, uh, a lunatic who actually did try to carry out a, a genocide against the Incas in Peru. But I like to use the, an old formula to describe who Columbus was. He was often back in the day when you could actually talk more uh, fully about these things, it, it, it was said that he was in pursuit of God, gold, and glory. I'm going to put God to the end because I think that in this context we're going to want to look uh, carefully and conclude on that point. But certainly he was interested in gold. Um, trading was an important part of um, what Spain was after in the world. And because Constantinople had fallen. It was very difficult now to trade with the East, where there were spices and other things that Europeans found to be um, valuable in their lives. So explorers started to set off. Columbus, of course, we know, tried to cross to the Indies across um, the Atlantic and discovered this new continent instead. And there's a reason why he is celebrated in a way 
that, say, a figure like Vasco da Gama is not. Vasco da Gama sailed down the coast of Africa, the west coast of Africa, and then around, and then actually did reach the Indies and set up a trade route for Portugal. But great as that achievement was, and it was great to do in those days with the, the primitive ships and, and instruments that uh, sailors had, da Gama only reached lands that were already known to people in Europe. Columbus actually discovered an entirely new world. And so he set out initially to establish a trading post. He thought he was going to go to a much richer civilization in Europe and bring back gold and trade for spices and whatnot. Uh, when that bec it became clear that that's not where he was, then he tried to set up a, a kind of an agricultural colony. And, but, and yet there's, there are indications that he was not by nature a greedy man any more than he was a violent man. He was, uh, he was an explorer primarily. He was driven by many other things than the pursuit of wealth. So let's, let me go on to glory. Um, Columbus w was celebrated and wanted to be celebrated for this unheard of achievement. Many people had set out across the Atlantic thinking that they could go out and discover something new and had never been heard from again. Part of the glory of Columbus is that he was such an extraordinary navigator. He was an intuitive uh, navigator with, again, very primitive instruments. So he knew, he, 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 he intuited that there were southern winds and in the Atlantic that would take him west, and that if he, there were north, it, more northerly than that, there were winds that would take him back east so he could actually sail back to where he had come from. And while he was in the Caribbean, he discovered a fact, the, the fact that the um, that magnetic compasses varied in that area, and that there was a bulge near the coast of of, um, of South America, something that is almost um, unimaginable that somebody in his circumstances was able to intuit. The, um, the historian um, Felipe Fernando Salmestre, one of the great living uh, historians of the early age of exploration, teaches part-time at, at um, Notre Dame and I think also at Oxford, has said it just in terms of maritime history, that Columbus made many other d important discoveries of a scientific nature. And I'm going to just quote a passage here. His decoding of the Atlantic wind system, his discovery of magnetic variation in the Western Hemisphere, his contributions to the mapping of the Atlantic and the New World, his epic crossing of the Caribbean, his demonstrations of the continental, continental nature of parts of South and Central America, his aperçu about the imperfect sphericity of the globe, the Earth, as I said, globe, the Earth bulges in the Atlantic near Brazil, his uncanny intuitive skill in navigation. Any of these would qualify an explorer for enduring fame. Together, they constitute an unequaled record of achievement. And in his own day, Columbus, um, Francisco Lopez de Gomara in his history, his general history of the New World said that the greatest event since the creation of the world, including the incarnation and death of him who created it, is the discovery of the Indies. Now, I find that a lot of people take things like this for granted these days. We can get on planes, or we could before the pandemic, and fly to Europe or Africa in, in six, eight hours, something like that. The ability to carry out a, a a, a long voyage out of sight of land the way that Columbus uh, undertook was itself already extremely daring. 
And the, uh, the ability to carry that out successfully is something that no one else prior to him had ever been able to do. I happened to be in Rome uh, in 1992 when the Vatican had a uh, exhibit at one of its, va its uh, museums of um, things related to Columbus and the early discoveries of the Americas. And one of the things that happened in the museum is you would walk through these curtains and you would part them and you would step out onto the deck of the Santa Maria, which was the largest of the three ships in that first voyage. The Santa Maria internal was probably about 60 feet in length. And until you've actually stepped out on that de deck and realized that people crossed the Atlantic Ocean and on that small vessel and, and were able to do so uh, in spite of everything that they encountered, you don't really realize how amazingly courageous as well as skillful it was that what, what they did. But I want to end on the question of God. We talked about gold, we talked about glory. But we know better than ever at this point in history, given the work that scholars have carried out, that one of the primary motivations of Columbus was his Christian faith. He believed that he had been inspired by the Holy Spirit to undertake those long voyages in order to fulfill Jesus' command at the end of, of Matthew's gospel to go and preach the gospel of all nations. And he was following in this a medieval tradition that the second coming, Jesus could not return to earth until the gospel had been preached to all nations. One sign that, that he was um, very sincere about this, because some people, you know, some modern historians who are not very religious themselves look at that and they say, well, yeah, that was just a cover for the gold and the glory. In fact, we know now from researches that Columbus had long studied um, scriptures, books of prophecy, as, as well as books of navigation and geography and astronomy and whatnot. And that he put his money where his mouth was, that in his late wills, he always left money at the Bank of Genoa. He was Genoese from, from Genoa. He left money in his, his, his uh, will for crusades to retake the Holy Land from Muslims. Now, whatever you may think of that, the crusade, we know that he at least dedicated parts of his own wealth to, to carrying that out. And so his religious motivations, I think, are indisputably clear. Also, I think that there's a, a, a certain spiritual quality to him that it's worth uh, paying some attention to. Here's a letter that he sent to Ferdinand and Isabella about how he became convinced that the voyage was not merely possible, but it was his own special vocation, that he had been called to this by God. I'm quoting here. During this time, I have searched out and studied all kinds of texts, geographies, histories, chronologies, philosophies, and other subjects. With a hand that could be felt, the Lord opened to my mind to the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies, and he opened my will to desire to accomplish this project. This was the fire that burned within me when I came to visit your highnesses. And adding that he wanted there to be a milagro evidentissimo, a very conspicuous miracle in this enterprise, Columbus acknowledges and he repeats that though he had read and studied much on his own and he is an uneducated man, and I'm quoting again, for the execution of the journey to the Indies, I was not aided by intelligence, by mathematics, or by maps. It was simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. Now, today, a lot of people look at that and regard it as religious imperialism. And of course, 
we, we would carry out this evangelization differently today. At the time, uh, several of the popes wrote to say that the evangelization should not be carried out in a, a violent way, but it should be carried out by the example of Christian living and by inviting people to convert to the gospel. <coughs> Leo XIII, um, more recently, of course, toward the end of the 19th century, ar argued that what Columbus had done actually was a kind of liberation, that he had brought Christianity to a mighty multitude, cloaked in miserable darkness, given over to evil rites and the superstitious worship of vain gods. Now, of course, that's the thing that a pope would say about a whole continent that had been evangelized. But here's another witness from a, a, a Mexican novelist, Carlos Fuentes, no great friend of Christianity or the United States or of Europe. Fuentes appreciated, as a Mexican, the Copernican revolution that Columbus brought to his own people. Remember, the Aztecs, um, the Aztecs believed in a cosmology. They had a very elaborate theology and cosmology, but they believed that the balance of the world was held in balance by the shedding of human blood, and that's why we we know about this history of human sacrifice, where they would rip living hearts out of the chests of slaves and then throw their bodies down the steps of these temples. Fuentes says. Uh, there's an epical shift in native cultures owing to Christian influence. And here I'm quoting again. One can only imagine the astonishment of the hundreds and thousands of Indians who asked for baptism as they came to realize that they were being asked to adore a God who sacrificed himself for men instead of asking men to sacrifice themselves to gods as the Aztec religion demanded. That, I believe, is something that is much missing for our converse conversations these days. And it's simply a historical fact of moving from one type of religious system to another that I think almost everyone today would regard as uh, a, a more humane, a more divine way of conceiving the, the, the relationship between human beings and the gods. So let me close after talking about so many awful things that happen and some good ones. Let me. Let me Close on a more uplifting note with an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Our Lady of Guadalupe, as, as you know, is a, instrumental in the evangelization of the Americas. It's something that happened in no other part of the world. There were explorers who went into Africa and, of course, went into Asia and other places, but there was not a kind of a continental uh, success in, in evangelization the way there was in the Americas. And it was largely owing to the influence of Our Lady of Guadalupe being brought by um, missionaries into various parts of the world. So Our Lady of Guadalupe appears in the early 1500s to Juan Diego, a poor peasant outside of Mexico City. Juan Diego was a Toltec, and in the Toltec theology, there were many gods, as there often are in pagan religious systems, but there was one high god the absolute highest God who ruled over all. And in that system, that high Toltec God, the highest Toltec God, was absolutely inaccessible to human beings. He was beyond anything that we could say, do, pray to, reach. He was just absolutely transcendent. But we know from study of the tilma, the, the cloak that, that Juan Diego presented with the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on it, that there is a 
four-petal flower on her pregnant stomach. And that four-petal flower, although it appears that we can't quite identify what plant that is from, but that flower in the Toltec system represented that all-high god who was beyond all other gods and beyond human reach. So what that flower appearing on, over Mary's uh, pregnant stomach signified to indigenous people was that that great, that greatest and that truest of all gods was in her womb and that he had now come down to close to them and was going to be with them. Now, indigenous or European, we have to recognize that revelation as a quite important thing, indeed a revolution among the many other things that have come down to us. And I would argue, and I will continue to argue, that we ought to be grateful, not just appreciative, but absolutely grateful for the imperfect vessel who made that and many other good things possible on these shores. Christopher Columbus, because if we repudiate him, we will be repudiating the very foundation on which our civilization can be self-critical. And that will mean not only a crisis of the West and a criticism of Columbus, but Western suicide. Thank you. Now, I have a few questions here that were emailed ahead of time. And um, unfortunately, because we can't have a, a live interaction, we've had to make use of a, a email um, to submit questions. But let me just take these in the order that uh, they've been presented to me. Uh, first, someone says, I had a close relative tell me that Western civilization is, cri is in crisis because a larger and larger mass of people are realizing that a society predicated on genocide, slavery, domination, imperialism, patriarchy, ableism, sexism, environmental destruction, etc., aka Western civilization, should be destroyed. How would you respond to that statement? Well, I think as I made clear in my remarks, and, and again, I don't want to just say that it's okay because other people are doing it. I think our Western civilization, because of our Christian values, it, our Christian values absolutely, absolutely enable us to make that sort of criticism. In other places, you know, um, genocide, slavery, domination, sexism, patriarchy, who, what other civilization cares about these things? We care about them because our Christian heritage uh, tells us something about the dignity of all human beings. So first of all, Western civilization in its more negative aspects is no different than any other civilization. And in fact, if you want to look to some other civilization, you're going to be quite disappointed that there isn't even the same self-critical um, uh, elements that we have in, in Western Christianity. But to me, all those terms link together and now are often linked together under intersectionality or whatever else. There, there's sort of a self-hatred in our culture. And it's something that has to be responded to with facts but also stoutly, just to say that, that why is it that so many people wish to come here then? They wish to come here because it's actually better than the, the, the average in uh, world civilizations. Another person says, if you haven't already, could you please address the papal bulls promoting the discovery doc doctrine at the time? What did they allow or encourage? What did they not allow? Can you contextualize their use and talk about the current controversies surrounding them? 
Um, actually, the papal documents tend to follow the line of Las Casas and Francisco de Vitoria, a very important Thomist philosopher and natural uh, law philosopher in Spain, uh, in that they, they recognize that human beings in the New World are true human beings. There actually was a debate at Valladolid in Spain over were, um, were the native peoples rational beings? Because if you're a rational being, this goes back to Aristotle, that some people are slaves by nature and some, some people are not. If you're a rational being and you can conduct your own affairs uh, prudently and, and effectively, then you're, you're a human being who's able to take care of yourself. Aristotle believed, no, Christians do not believe this, of course, but Aristotle believed that there are some people who were slaves by nature, that they were incapable of ruling themselves or ruling a society, and therefore they needed the, the um, help of others who were more mature, in much the same way that young human beings need the help of adults in order to, to mature. But there is nothing like that. It, it was argued in Spain, Las Casas and Vitoria and others uh, they succeeded with the Vatican in getting the Vatican to put out documents. And if I had time, I'd go back and get the, the uh, Vatican references out. But you can be assured, if you, if you look at my book and, and, look, and look at those references, you'll be surprised, actually, at how the confrontation, the encounter with these people, actually forced Christianity to, to start to think more deeply about the nature of what a human person is and, and the nature of international law and rights. All of this is in the scholarly literature. All right, here's a lighter question. How did we Italians, I'm half, so am I, by the way, co-op Columbus when he sailed for the Portuguese? I'm glad we did, but I wonder about this. Well, um, Columbus was Italian. Columbus was from Genoa. There have been all sorts of theories that he was Jewish or Greek or Portuguese or something, but he was from Genoa. And Genoa and Ven Venice were the two great sailing powers, the two, two great trading powers. If you've ever been to Venice, all that beauty was built up uh, out of the riches of trading that were carried out with the East, mostly the Eastern Mediterranean. For some reason, the, the Portuguese um, attracted large numbers of uh, Italian sailors. Um, even England did. John, we talk about John Cabot as one of the early British explorers, but he was actually an Italian named Giovanni Cabotto. The Italians had great sailing skills. They had perfected this in the Mediterranean. They profited by it. And so when Portugal began to explore, and remember, that um, that uh, the uh, since the east was closed, the land routes in the east were closed off by the conquest of the Muslims, and people began to take other routes. The Portuguese started to explore down the African coast, and it looks like like Columbus went down very far to a, a island called Minas, I think it is, or Mina. Um, that may have been his, his farthest voyage before he actually crossed the Atlantic. So he started with Portugal, and then of course he prevailed on the king and queen of Spain to to back him in his Atlantic voyages. Here's another question. Are you aware of the 2011 book by Dr. Carol Delaney entitled Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem that describes Columbus as primarily seeking wealth to pay for a new crusade to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims? A secondary purpose, she writes, was to find gold for the Spanish crown. Yeah, I referred to this earlier about how in his own personal will he left money for the reconquest of the Holy Land. Um, but Carol Delaney is a wonderful historian, a real historian. There are lots of them out there. And if you, you begin to dig into these books, you'll be surprised at how much different the age of discovery will begin to look for you. It's not to be reduced to the kinds of social conflicts that exist in 2021 in America. It's a much richer, it's glorious, it's horrible in ways, 
Um, but it's our history, and we, we need to advance what was good in it and uh, take steps to correct what was not good in it. Last question, another lighter one. Are you aware of the decision of the University of Notre Dame to conceal the murals in its main building that describe and celebrate Columbus's arrival in the New World? Have you participated at any level in discussions at Notre Dame before or after the decision about the murals? I regret to say that my only um, participation with Notre Dame is that on a football weekend, where I was in that building with my brother, who's a priest, and my son, John Paul, and my son's friend who's a graduate of Notre Dame and was taking us around the campus, that on this football weekend the, the, um, the murals were exposed. I don't know if they're exposed all the time or just on special occasions, but I can say, tell you that at least on that Saturday, when, um, which was a football Saturday, Notre Dame seemed to have some pride in those Columbus murals. So thank you all. There are plenty of other questions, of course, to be asked and to, to answer. And I can't say enough that there are good materials out there. Don't pay attention to the ideologues who want to destroy our civilization, uh, who want to commit suicide in the name of they know not what. It's because of our, our, our Western religious and philosophical tradition that we have this ability to criticize what we've done wrong in the past. But we also have this great ability to bring to the world something that no other civilization in the world ever has. Thank you very much.